everybody. Welcome to This Anthro Life. As always, this is Adam Gamwell. Today, I've got a very special episode for you that's working as a crossover between This Anthro Life and a sister podcast we're working on called Experience by Design. Now, Experience by Design, as the name seems to imply, digs into questions of how do we design experiences for ourselves, for others, you know, whether it's something like a puzzle escape or a stadium bathroom, or even questions about whether humans can have shared experiences. I definitely recommend you check out that podcast. You can see it at experiencexdesign.com, as well as I'll have a link for it in the show notes below. But today I've got a very special guest. I'm talking with a good colleague and friend, Bill Fleming. He's a Boston-based independent brand and marketing strategist and business consultant for designers. I met Bill a few years ago. We both teach courses at Lesley University here in Boston in the art and design program. Um, He teaches a really interesting class on professional practices for designers, something that I have become increasingly interested in, both as a burgeoning practicing designer, but also, you know, with just having more business and design-centric conversations, as well as bringing anthropology into more direct conversation with business and design practice. So what's cool about talking with Bill is that he's been in this space for decades now. And so he is a master guru, marketer, and brand strategist, helping companies, especially design savvy companies, think through what it means to have conversations, ongoing relationships with both customers and businesses. One of the spaces Bill has an expertise in is B2B, otherwise known as business to business. And you may have also heard of B2C, which is business to consumer or business to customer. So in this episode, we talk about what brands are and how the cultural work of branding has changed in recent decades with the advent of new and easier to use technologies. You can think about things like most people can make a podcast now because you have easier access to software. Or if you want to make a professionally edited video, you can do that using Adobe software pretty easily. Or you can make a website using Squarespace or Wix, any different kinds of platforms that have really lowered the barrier to entry for people trying to make creative and or branded work. And then third, we talk about how we can think about brands as conversations and not just between businesses and consumers, right? But also between businesses themselves and how these practices might differ. It's a fascinating and wide ranging conversation and I can't wait to share it with you. So let's get to it. I'm going to tell you some brands and ask you if you know what the brands are. Okay. Um, Got a quiz. And then if you know what their marks are. So first question is, do you know Squarespace? I do know Squarespace. What does Squarespace do? They make, they're a website content builder. Yes. Who also does e-commerce and email blast now too, which is relatively new. Anyways, but you, yeah, you get the general gist of Squarespace is. Do you know what their logo mark is? A square? (laughs) It's uh, (laughs) abstract skewed two S's. Okay. Yeah. Didn't know. Bully Boy Distillers, Boston-based brand. I, I have heard of. Yes, I've had. I've had their libations. Before. And what do you think of? What's your memory of the libations? It's funny. I think I remember the label being orange. Okay. And I and I, you know, think I enjoyed the beverage. Yeah. Again, like it's it's funny. I just remember that. Sure. I, I'm, and the name is in the head. Do you remember the logo? Is it is it like a little boy? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Then not. It's a horse. It's a horse. See. Nope. Do you know Bull and Branch? No, you don't know Bowl and Branch. So Bowl and Branch sells organic linens. I actually often hear them advertise on podcasts. So if you did know Bowl and Branch, you probably you would know. Heard them on a podcast. <laughs> so, and my question was, what logo? Their logo is this round, symmetrical, sort of abstract floral, um, mm. floral thing. So my point in bringing these up is that these are brands that, for the most part, you're familiar with. You know what they are, what they do, yeah. what they represent, uh, and some of them you have an affinity to, mm. but yet you don't know the mark. 
And yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that to me is an indication of how mm. branding has changed and that that visual aspect isn't as, it's necessary, but not vital the way that it once was. It's the experience of what you have with those mm. products and services that build the brand in its entirety. And that's what you remember. And that's what, that's what will want you to go back or to recommend it to somebody else. So tell me, what, what's, tell me a little bit about your, your favorite type of coffee. You know, so you only get a dark roast, light roast, medium roast. I'm a medium roast guy. Yeah. I, I'm a little bit of a, a coffee snob. Mm-hmm. I, I basically I look at the labels of like George Howell yeah, yeah. and see like, okay, if it's a medium roast and like read the, the fruity oh. descriptions and whatnot. Yeah. But medium roast, if it's hot coffee with cream, mm. if it's iced coffee, black. So, Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 You know, it's funny, like I'm, I'm from Texas and so iced coffee is not a thing, which it should be because it's so hot, yeah. right? Yeah. But you know, I came here and everybody's getting their iced Dunkin'. Yeah, which is not quality coffee. Yes, but, no. Uh, you know, but it was interesting to, to see this thing. And that end, and everybody gets ice cream in the wintertime. I now do that. Yes. I've been converted to, to wintertime ice cream. It's a very New England thing. Yeah. Very New England thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, want, I, don't, I, I wonder about that, too, because it's like, is, I mean, I guess kind of the bigger question, like, is there is there branding around that? Like, is there something about the New England brand? I, I don't know. It's like, is there is there a thing that, that New Englanders are like, this is my thing. I want iced coffee. I think, well, what's interesting is that Boston had a reputation of being very insular and part of it I think stemmed from being a large immigrant destination and Mm. so you had Jewish enclaves, you had Irish enclaves, you had Italian enclaves and I think that people just stuck to their own groups, their own tribes Mm. and then I think that that sort of stuck, like put them all together and people just stuck within Boston and so things that were familiar to them are things Uh. that they gravitated to and so Dunkin' Donuts being based in Boston Mm. just became this ubiquitous donut shop. Um, as, I guess as the name points out, right? So yeah, well now it's Dunks or yeah. whatever, whatever there, yeah. So, um, D-N-K-N? D- somebody, yeah. <laughs> but so I think what's interesting is that I think that its popularity had to do with the fact that it was familiar mm. uh, and plentiful. Like there was lo- there were so many locations, n- not because it was good. Mm. That makes sense. And then, and I think Boston at that time liked it that anything that was familiar that was familiar to them in their neighborhood that's what they wanted to be a part of mm, interesting yeah because you're you're from somerville you're from from here in, yeah. in the in the boston hood right yeah um and i mean dunkin donuts has been around for a while is it something you remember going to as a kid um or did it did it come later like i'm, I'm curious was it always this kind of institution i guess you're saying, i remember you know, one that dunkin donuts didn't suck yeah. <laughs> i remember <laughs> i remember yeah I, mean, I yeah i do remember when they were around i was fr- fairly neutral about it there was a donut shop that was at the end of the street in Ball Square, Somerville. Mm. That was a just totally sold donuts and coffee. But if Dunkin' Donuts was nearby, that was sort of a good fallback. Yeah. Now, if given the choice, I would definitely go for the local donut shop. Mm. Um, yeah. Just the quality is just so much better. But yeah, I, I think back in the day, it's it like Dunkin' Munchkins, and yeah, know, yeah. they had they were selling blueberry muffins at one point, and so oh. it was all about the baked goods at one point. And then at mm. some point, they realized they were making much more money with coffee, and so. They did away with that and coffee was their thing. That's interesting. You know, it's, it's funny, like uh, coffee is one of the things that as an anthropologist, I studied for a little while because um, I, I did my research on food stuff that, you know, nice. looked at, at quinoa and also sheep and, and mutton. Nice. <laughs> Bunch of weird things. Coffee was also sure. part of that because yeah. you got to look at coffee. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, the story of coffee, coffee is a very global crop. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's a very like human integrated yeah. food source. And, you know, up until the 1950s, coffee wasn't really, it wasn't kind of known. Like the idea is like, you know, coffee shops are so ubiquitous today, right? Like yeah. You know Starbucks, yeah, you know yeah, Dunkin' yeah. Donuts. Um, or we know True Grounds here yes. in the neighborhood. And like 60, 70 years ago, 
you know, there was Folgers. Yeah. And, 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 you know, maybe Maxwell House. Maxwell House, yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. like, that's what you'd have. And it was like, coffee was kind of known culturally in the U.S. as the thing that your grandma served, <laughs> you know, yeah. after dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and then slowly over time, right, you know, with the, with the, Partially with the introduction of Starbucks in Seattle. I agree. You know, it, it built what, and Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, talks about this idea of the third space, right? Yeah. That made the coffee the coffee shop, it's not quite work, it's not quite home. Yeah. And, and that gave then people, now obviously, you know, people are always on a laptop at a yeah. coffee shop, they're always studying. And it's crazy because if you think about that, you're kind of renting the space for like five bucks, four bucks, the yeah. coffee that you buy you know, yeah. for a couple hours. And it's like the weird, the, the ROI on that's pretty good. They're like, oh, it's $3, $4, I can sit here and work for a while. Yeah. But it's interesting because that's totally changed our relationship with coffee, right? And Dunkin' Donuts as a as a restaurant, you know, if, if listeners have never been there, it's interesting. Like, so basically, it's 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 a coffee shop, donut shop, but like they're not really. If you think of a Starbucks or some coffee shop that you might go sit and study, and you don't see that very often in Dunkin' Donuts, right? The actual interior design is not made for sitting for a long time. It's orange and purple and yeah, yeah. hard, it's, it's, hard it's surfaces, hard plastic, hard yeah. surfaces, you know, yeah. yeah. And that's interesting. Like there's no bookshelves with random things or, you know, like the, the dark wood of Starbucks kind of pointing out, you know, some sort of rich looking heritage, you know, yeah. it's very interesting. And that, that really kind of, again, speaks to the idea of like coffee is, again, it's a little plant and then it's, it's a bean that you can then roast. But yeah. then this, I think, kind of really helps us think about this idea of like brand differentiation or brand segmentation too, right? And yeah. That, so I kind of want to dig in that with you as a, as a brand expert, as a brand consultant to help us think about you know, kind of what is a brand, right? And like yeah. coffee is one way of thinking about that. You know, sure. we see these differences because it has to like, you know, again, if, if you did a blind taste test, many people probably couldn't tell if they're having a Dunkin' Donuts or a Starbucks. Sure. Or even more so like a Tarasu or a Costa Rican, yeah. Ethiopian Harar, right? Yeah. But the fact that those also exist is quite interesting, right? Because yeah. those themselves are yeah. kind of brands, you know? Yeah. So I don't know, let's dig in a bit and like tell us, tell us like in, in your idea, like what, what is a brand? You know, what... What is that? So it's interesting. My work is primarily in the business to business space where one business is selling a product or service to another business. Branding in general, whether it's consumer or business focused, there was a point where it was about a series of memories. So mm. you remember the iconology or the logo mark and the color choices and mm. the, the certain taste of things like a taste of coffee and whatnot. So there were these memories. But my observation now is it's really more of a series of conversations or experiences. And I think I see that differently because of my experience with B2B. Mm. A lot of business to business, the the sales cycle is not binary. It's not yes or no. Like, yes, I want to buy that technology. No, mm. I don't want to buy the technology. It's a bunch of conversations that happen. You might compare different types of technologies. So say if um, an event tech company was looking for something to improve their email marketing system. So looking at other email marketing systems, and they have to evaluate different different types of software companies that, that make that. Mm. There's a lot of conversations that have to happen with it and in order for them to say yes. And so my take is, is that at one point branding was a series of memories, but mm. now I see it as branding is more a series of conversations and experiences. Interesting. So that's my take. And does that, does that make it feel like, I guess in, in one level that then brands are now less discreet in terms of like discreet, meaning that there was like a starting and a stop point. I get that there's, we'll just say the Nike swoosh, right? Yeah. Logo. That's something that we all recognize, yeah. right? But now it's, it's not so much that by itself, but how does a consumer feel about the product or how does a business feel about, do they want to do business with Nike and supplying rubber or cloth for the shoes or, or whatever, right? Yeah. So on the supplier side of thing, I think what's interesting is that I don't know what it was like in the beginning for Nike in terms of sourcing the rubber and sourcing the canvas and sourcing mm. the leather that they need. And I would imagine when they were just starting up, I think two things were probably happening at once. One was that 
the demand for those type of materials probably wasn't that particularly high, or maybe it was high because of mm. World War II. And yeah, yeah. so maybe there was more surplus of those type of materials. So mm. vendors could supply easier than I would know about. But also I think that Nike wasn't known at the time. And so the vendors may have, it would have been, I don't think they would have been as incentivized to try and sell to them those materials mm. as they are now, because now that Nike is known as the international brand and the billions of dollars that it makes, the their suppliers know the more mm. they can sell to Nike, the more that Nike sells, the more that they can sell to Nike. And yeah, so yeah. I think that that, I think the, the, the evolution and the rise of Nike has changed the dynamic of what the supplier relationship is. And I do think that the brand of Nike influences mm. the supplier's likelihood of wanting to either cut deals or expand deals. So I think that that's, that's become part of the process. That, uh, that's, that's super interesting. And so I think what's, what's cool about this too is that, you know, in, in the broad sense, like the, the B2B or the business to business space like is, can be often contrasted kind of to the B2C, the business to consumer or customer space, right? Correct. And I think what was, what's great about this is a lot of people, unless you work in the B2B space, don't think about how yeah. do businesses buy and sell yeah. or, or brandy themselves to each other, yeah. right? And so again, when we think about Nike, we are talking about the swoosh and Air Jordans back in the day. Yeah. And like, you know, do I have the the new dope shoes? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, how are my kicks? You know, and like that also is definitely part of this conversation. But yeah. then I think what you're saying too, what's interesting is that like that, even that conversation, the B2C filters over into the B2B where, you know, suppliers of rubber or canvas yeah. may feel a new kind of incentive as the brand grows yeah. for consumers. For them too, there's actually a prestige in being the canvas supplier for Nike, right? Yes. So I could take this conversation into two places that we yeah. can go and both both one and two. <laughs> Sounds good. One of it is on the B2B side of things. So I teach at Leslie Art and Design in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I teach professional practices of design. It's for undergraduates who are graphic designers and interactive designers. And the courses meant to help students with their career development, also to learn about marketing, business practices, legal issues, all sort of the nuts and bolts things of design all the non-design aspects of design, let's put it that way. And so there's a class exercise that I do because all, all the students throughout their entire school career are all being given these projects that are very consumer-centric, whether it's a nonprofit that's trying to push an anti-cigarette campaign or anti-smoking campaign mm. or a product such as like a you know, Starbucks or a, a fake coffee company or whatever. Yeah. Like, so they're very consumer-centric projects that they're working on. And so there's, a, a, there's an exercise that I do where I have them look at different types of businesses. So say like a ski resort versus uh, a bank headquarters versus a university. And then I have the students put up post-it notes to say, okay, what services do these organizations need in order to thrive and survive? Mm. So things like landscaping or plumbing or parking. And, and so all these different types, types of things. And then what I do is I show the students that like those businesses are selling to the big businesses. Mm. And so a landscaping company would be selling to yeah. the bank and would be selling to the university and would be selling to the ski resort. Mm. It's kind of this aha moment when the students see this, like, oh, there's this whole other transactional world that's going out there. And then I follow it up with an exercise that I give them a list of um, about 100 non-B2C industries. So like aerospace, Broadcast infrastructure, shipbuilding, plastics, things that are industries um, that stand on their own. But we don't, they're not geared towards consumers. They're geared towards that business selling to another business. So yeah. a supplier selling to, to Nike, for example. Hmm. And what's fascinating is that when I get feedback at the end of the semester, 
one of the questions asked is, what assignments did you like? And, and more often than not, I get this B2B assignment huh. because it opens up their perspective that what they thought the stuff that they'd be working on is one thing. And for many of them, it's true. But what I say is for about 70% of them, 70% of the designers, mm. they're going to be working with B2B projects, business to business clients. It makes sense. Yeah. And they're not exposed to that at school. And so I, I feel lucky that I get to introduce them to that mm. um, and I'll be curious to see if anybody starts working for NASA or, or <laughs> anything yeah. beyond that because of it. But it's good to be able to enlighten them with that. So I think yeah. part of that part of that starts with schooling. And then the second part of the question, which was what I see is the technology is enabled do-it-yourself websites, do-it-yourself mm. e-commerce shops, do-it-yourself videos that are professional quality, do-it-yourself email marketing campaigns, do-it-yourself advertising, online pay-per-click advertising and whatnot. And so the ability to roll out a, a product after you have the ability to manufacture it is really simple compared to, compared to where it was 20 years ago. And I think what that's done is that enables these micro-brands, is what I call them, mm. to get traction and become viable. So one uh, company that they'll never be as big as Nike, but Allbirds, for example, right, yeah, yeah, okay. is uh, is getting to be some prominence and hopefully they're profitable and hopefully they're sustainable. Yeah. Um, but they're a lesser known brand that has a lot of brand loyalty. Mm. Um, and why, what I find interesting about that is that, so you've heard the brand. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and so I like the shoes too. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you like about them? Uh, I mean, they, they seem... To, well, they seem like softer versions of Tom's. Uh, you know, yeah. So yeah. comparison. Yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting is that that the symbolism of Nike that was so like yeah. like that's the important driver for all birds. You don't need to know what the logo mark is. You need to know that <laughs> you true. see you, you yeah. see friends or call, you know somebody walking down the street and you see those shoes and you're like oh those are cool shoes and then you got an ad that pops up on Facebook and it's like oh those are the shoes that I saw with that person on the street mm, yeah. and then you look into it and you see some good reviews and so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna check it out and I'm gonna try try them on. Mm. And their logo mark, by the way, it's a word mark with a script font. Pretty simple. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, yeah. But what's interesting is that the, the symbolism, you don't need to know the symbolism in order to appreciate the, the brand. Yeah. And that's where, back to the my thinking of branding as a series of conversations. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, too, in terms of helping us just raise our awareness about a logo mark itself, right? Again, if, if you're coming to this just saying, okay, I hear the word logo or brand, then you might begin by saying, oh, I think of the Nike swoosh, but you're right. Like the logo mark of Allbirds in this case, right, is, is script, right? It's scripted yep. type. And so to even have ourselves, and Dunkin' Donuts is similar, too, right? It's like it's got a very, very recognizable typeface. Yep. I don't know what it's called, Dunkin'. <laughs> Dunks, I think it Dunks, is, or Dunkin' yeah, is or Dunkin'. Yeah. You know, that, but thinking about that too, it's like that, that what are the kind of pieces that might, that might uh, you recognize, but also realizing that part of that, of course, is things like typography and color, right? It's not just going to be a, a abstract image. That's part of it, of course, too. Yep. But then that, that, like, again, minimally, that piece shows us how deep of a conversation, a cultural conversation, it requires us to understand, you know, the, how much we actually already know as cultural citizens living in, in the places that we live of how to both interpret and understand a brand, Right. We may not get the nuances of it. And I think that's what I think is so important about this kind of work too is, is that we recognize a logo, an image, maybe a typeface, mm -hmm. but we, or even some color scheme perhaps, you know, like the Olympic rings, you know, mm -hmm. if you see those colors together, you might say, okay, I understand mm -hmm. that's, that's the Olympic color, especially if they're in the ring form, mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, if they're in blocks, maybe not. You know, the, the, the funny thing is like, that's, there's a lot of intellectual work that goes into that, that a lot, you know, that we, 
are both given a lot and fed a lot, but you know, that as, as consumers, but then I, I love the idea of thinking about this as a conversation, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's, it's a cultural conversation that mm-hmm. we have, you know, with, with each other, with ourselves, with, with our peers, with advertising. Yep. And then still, still there is this world of B2B that like not everybody always sees, right? This, that to me, it's almost like talking about like this, this like, yeah. you know, deeper form of conversation, right? Yeah. That it goes in two directions. Yeah. You know, I think that that's super cool. Yeah. To think about because it is how does a business have to differentiate, but also how does how does a business have to differently articulate a brand, you know, its brand to another business if they're trying to do B2B. I love the example of the exercise you do at Leslie because it is is getting students to think, because you're totally right. You know, it's a lot of students then they they kind of approach it as interactive designers, graphic designers thinking that, oh, I want to be a designer, I want to make a new UI user interface for kayak. Yeah. Or I want to make, you know, whatever, some nice I want to do some type work for the BBC. That's or cool. Or consumer packaging yeah, or yeah, yeah. posters for uh, a rock concert or something. Right. Yeah. But then it's like, but how about making posters for a landscape business? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah. Like, that's, I think what's, what's interesting about that idea and this exercise that's so powerful is that basically you're saying, here's a thousand other conversations you could be having. Yes. You know, and your work as a designer is to help think about how do we bring that conversation for two businesses to come together? Yeah. You know? Yeah. What are some of the major differences between like a B2C and a B2B? Um, like, how do they talk about the relationships and what does that conversation look like? Well, first, I'll start with the similarities. I think it's, yeah. it's still human to human contact. Yeah. So you want to humanize your brand and that doesn't make a difference if you're consumer centric or if you're business centric. That's something that's really important. I think a lot of the consumer stuff is focused in on either a tangible purchase mm-hmm. or service purchase. So I want to buy a TV. I can go to Amazon and I can order a TV. A TV is delivered to me. I want someone to set up my TV and put it into a wall. I can go to uh, TaskRabbit uh, and pay somebody on TaskRabbit to put, mm-hmm. up, put up the TV. And so there are very binary considerations. You know, you choose mm-hmm. this, this TV or that TV. Okay, I'll go with this TV. And you say, yes, I'll purchase this TV. Um, okay, I need to install. Let's go to Thumbtack. Yes, this person gets good ratings. Yes, I'll do this. So it's a yeah. fairly quick process. And depending on what the item is, a car, buying a car is a different type of process. Yeah. With, I think, a lot of business-to-business stuff, I think that kind of buying a TV is an impulse buy. But like that that quick decision-making or relatively mm-hmm. quick decision-making, it, it isn't there. And so with B2B, it's, it works in concert with marketing. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about how the brand presents itself. It's about how the brand promotes itself. Mm-hmm. And so how is it reaching out to the people that will either influence the decision on, yes, we need to have this product or service, or the people who are actually the decision makers to get them from tipping from, let me think about it, to, yes, let, let's sign the contract. Mm. And so I think that the, there's, the process of business to business is a longer sales lead than it mm. is for, for consumers. And I think the decision making process is a lot more protracted compared to uh, consumer stuff. Uh, one of the pieces you shared from Lippincott.com that was looking at brands kind of in the human era is yep. transactions now kind of operate as, as a relationship, kind of what you're saying. And yep. that when in the B2B space, it seems like that in this case, because it's kind of a more protracted process in terms of, you know, they're not trying to get this new flashy thing out. They're trying to help a business solve a problem. Correct. Right. And given that, like, it's more like, how do you become a partner over time versus Correct. like, you know, a, a consumer is not punished if you buy XTV versus YTV, right? Correct. But a supplier is if you don't buy from them, yeah. right? And so it is interesting to think about how you build that relationship. And it, and it isn't all about sort of promotional marketing, which I also want, I want to dig into that yeah. section after this, because that, that's a really important piece, too. Of It's not just about showing it to you, but it's how does it get pushed out there, yeah. right? Do yeah. you have a T-shirt cannon or do you have like a, you know, <laughs> a Death Star cannon to get, <laughs> yeah. to get your stuff yeah. out there? 
I'd love to think about that too. And for you in, in, in some of your experiences, how do you see that relationship develop over time? And like, what are some of the strategies to think about if you want to sort of build a, I'd love to get my landscaping company to come do your work. Yeah. So what's fascinating. So, you know, Moore's law, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. which is the founder from Intel in the sixties. The concept is, is that with microprocessors, the faster they're made, the cheaper they can be made, the more that can be made, the more that will accelerate the next generation. And so things will exponentially get faster and faster and faster. Mm. And I think that there's sort of a, a, a byproduct of that is now that so much is able to be able to done online with computers, mm. 20 years ago, the only ways that you would be able to make direct contact of big direct contact was a, with a sales prospect from mm. one business to another business. It would be reaching out on the phone or maybe sending a, a mailing to them or mm. going to a conference or, or maybe it's a, a, a print ad that was in a trade publication. And I think in the past 20 years, there's definitely been this whole acceleration of all these different um, vehicles that marketers can use now that you don't have to rely on a consultant or an expert or a large ad agency to do it. You can have, for some people, you can have an intern set it up and 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 put it out there. So things like email marketing has become massive, both in the consumer space, which we got bombarded with it, but also in the B2B space. Mm. The way they do it in the B2B space, though, is typically much more informative. It's much more giving you content that's stuff that you could use and so that you're getting an affinity for that organization from one business to another business. Like, hey, this business understands my business. Mm. Um, and, and you get these in little drips. They actually do call them drip campaigns. Mm. Um, and they have these sophisticated, there's much more sophisticated automated marketing tools where uh, sort of an if then if if somebody opens this email then a week later send them this different email mm. and if that person doesn't open an email send them a different email the hope is instead to have enough touch points um with that person so that mm. person the more you see they're engaged the more that they will likely turn into a lead the lead will then turn into a conversion and so mm. i think that there's the technology has enabled us to get really fast with that much faster than we were t- 20 years ago much faster than we were 10 years ago i mean the iphone only came out i think 12 years ago yeah 2007 yeah, yeah so like just the, the ability to have like to have your email and check out an email and send out an email blast using your phone like just yeah. everything is the, the evolution of the technology i, I think made it um a lot easier and therefore a lot trickier mm. to get the word out there. That, that, that's actually, that's great to think with because um, I'm even thinking of the example of MailChimp. The, the all-in-one yeah. marketing platform is what they call themselves yes, now, right? Yeah. And they used to just be kind of an email campaign-y group. Yes. Um, and so it's interesting to even see, again, that evolution. Because when you're yes. talking about doing emails on your phone, I'm thinking of the MailChimp app on the phone, which yeah. is quite sophisticated for yeah. this little screen. Absolutely. You know? And, and so, you're, you're, I mean, you're totally right there. And, and I've, I always had this like fascination, maybe it's a morbid curiosity with if then like drip marketing campaigns, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause it's, it, to me, I'm like, what is the alchemy behind thinking about if they do this, if they don't do that? And like, and how, how far do you have to branch out? You know? Oh, it's highly targeted. I've gotten involved with it. It's fascinating. It's basically, if this person isn't responding, then we do a low touch point. If this person, or if, the, if this person isn't engaging look with this email if they're not opening the email if they're not clicking on the email mm. then you want to do a follow-up that's a soft follow-up versus somebody that did, that did click on something and you can see that they may click like something twice it's like aha mm. all right they're interested in this so you want to send the next email to them as a little bit more of a hard, slightly harder sell and so you have yeah. analytics to know okay how do you how do you interact with that person 
Hmm. But then there's also other things. There's a whole other worlds of online advertising. I don't know how it's been for you, but so Facebook I use exclusively for, per, for personal purposes. I do hmm. not use it for, for personal good, good purposes for whatsoever. So <laughs> yeah. Twitter is primarily business. Instagram is a little bit of a hybrid. LinkedIn is all business. But Facebook, no clients, no colleagues, no that's like that's my own private world. And not that I have anything that's all that private that I need to have. I just need to, I want to keep it protected. Use some, some some space, yeah, some space. Yeah. It's yeah. my own space. Yeah. So, but not my space. Well, yes, not my space. Yes. <laughs> so what's interesting for me, though, is, of course, with my work, I'm looking at different software applications like you know, MailChimp is like they're promoting yeah. them now as, as this all-purpose marketing platform. So I look at their website and next thing you know, I go on to Facebook and I see MailChimp ads yeah. and yeah. I see constant contact ads and mm-hmm. I see uh, marketing coaches, how to improve your email best practices. So these ads are popping up on my mm-hmm. Facebook. Clearly they're picking up on the cookies yeah. from the other sites that have been on. But the advertisers have become much more sophisticated and that they know that Okay, they're on Facebook and maybe they're not using it for any purpose for, for business whatsoever, which is my case. Yeah. But these people are making decisions about business stuff. And so right, right. we want to make sure that we get in front of them. And if they're poking around on the on the web trying to find information about something, we now know that about them and let's put ourselves in front of their face mm. so that they make us aware of it. So the you get awareness and then you hopefully you get some engagement and that turns into yeah. uh, lead generation and conversion. So that actually dovetails perfectly into into kind of the other the other topic I was that you brought up before that I'm quite interested in, I think our listeners are too, is that this is not always about making something pretty, but it's about this promotional, like promotion is, is in like, how big is your, your canon, you know? And that's like such an interesting piece too that I think a lot of us don't think about. There's two, there's two sides I'm thinking about here, because one is that, as you said, because technology has shifted so much and we can, we can, I can run a marketing campaign on my iPhone with MailChimp yeah. for free yeah. for now until you get, you know, get more subscribers yeah. and you join your different tier or whatever. I mean, yeah. I, I've used services like Crowdfire, which is, is a social media like content helper, yeah. you know, super useful, you know, for, for building a, a Twitter community. Nice. And in, in whatever, I mean, that's just any, pick your number of things, yeah. right? And, and, or, or I mean, even like Adobe Premiere Rush that like, took the video editing capabilities of Premiere Pro and like con- condensed it into make this for YouTube. Or TikTok. Or TikTok, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right, you know. And on your phone now too, mm-hmm. if you want. And so it's incredible. And Photoshop is also now on, on iPad, for example. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing like even the, the most sophisticated of products yep. are like filtering their way into mobile yep. or mobile friendly platforms. Yep. And so meaning that like these, is, I love the idea of this like sort of micro brands or micro enterprises. Yep have some semblance of it. They have some way they can begin to enter the space that's yes. already crowded and like terrifyingly like giant Nikes over there or Google or Amazon. How am I going to get into like, you know, an, e- an e-commerce site, you know, uh, Shopify. Yeah. It's trying to make it easy for anybody to open a shop. Yeah. All these pieces to say then, yet that may or may not do much if you don't have any capacity to promote. Yes. How well can you push that thing out there yes. to the stratosphere? You yeah. Know? And Facebook's a great example. You're like, I'm looking at MailChimp or whatever or reading... We'll just say about Allbirds, yep. you know, on, on Allbirds website. And then I go to Facebook, unrelated, to go check on my niece. Mm-hmm. And then, bam, I get an ad for Allbirds. And you're like, huh. Or other sneaker companies or, or other shoe companies. Or, yes, so, yes, yes. Right? Yeah. So let's talk about that. This promotional piece is clearly very important. Like, yeah. it's it's not so much about if it's pretty, but like, can it, how big is your canon is the metaphor in my head, right? So you know? what's interesting, so we can even take this back to Nike. Yeah. And that 
there's so many people that gush over the the Nike logo and the Just Do It yeah. uh, tagline, and the fact that it's you know, three words, and the impact that 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 both of those have separately in in, in tandem. Mm. And I am a lot more cynical about it. And that the logo, it's nice. Like I get it. And the tagline, yeah, that's great. Mm. But the millions and millions, and at this point, billions and billions of dollars that Nike has invested in making sure that that mark is on every single box, on every single tag, on every single poster, on every single ad, on every single, it's the billions of dollars that they put behind that mark to make sure that it's this ubiquitous thing that gets associated with fitness and being an athlete. The mark itself is just, it's a pretty object. But in terms of it having resonance, there has to be the resources, the finances to push it out there so that it's ubiquitous. I think the era of those types of big businesses have changed. I I don't know if Nike's a public company or not. I don't Um, either, actually. Let's find out. Okay. Because I think that that makes a difference too. I think that public companies, they they often go public for funding sources so that they can take their company just to the next level. But then they're at the mercy of stockholders. Right. Um, so so the, the answer is yes, they are a publicly traded company. Great. So so now they're at the mercy of stockholders. And so they have to be their CEO, their upper level employees, all the employees are now uh, accountable to their sh- shareholders and making mm. sure that there's profits and dividends and stock valuations and all sorts of other stuff. And this also, I think, with the stock market, there's, there's this um, huge emphasis on growth, year after year growth, year mm. after year growth. And then the disappointment because it was flat. That, that's bad that it's flat. Right. And my sense is that there's a lot of us individuals that I would like to be making more money year over year, but I don't need to be making money year over year. I need to be able to sustain myself so that I can afford my mortgage and I can afford uh, my food and I can afford my, my way of living and, mm. and invest for retirement and savings and whatnot. I need to be able to maintain that. That to me is what's, what's important to me. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I think sustainability of a business, and I don't mean that in an environmental sense, I mean that in a financial mm. business sense, I think has shifted in that, um, we're going sort of back a little bit more to the little bit more of a mercantile society mm. where the individuals like the all, all birds, they don't have to be as enormous as Nike. If they're building a brand and they're selling enough shoes and they're able to sell the shoes at a profit that the people that are working there can make a fair living and they can mm. keep on promoting and evolving the business so that they can keep on maintaining that. And even if those sales stay constantly flat but constant and those people can pay their mortgages and they can pay for their food and pay for their way of life yeah. that to me is a successful business that to me is that that to me is i don't think that they need to go against nike and prove themselves i think it's i think that there is validity for a company to say we're going to do this because we can provide a good product or service and we're going to do this because i need to sustain a way of living mm. and that's good enough it doesn't yeah. need to be more. Doesn't mean better. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that <laughs> I, I think that that there's that's what's happening now. I think with again with the do it yourself e-commerce, do it yourself Shopify, do it yourself email blasts. I think that there's a lot more those independents. I think have that ability of not just putting out a shingle, but, but like okay, if I can maintain just shingle, I'm good. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that so that to me, I think shifts. I think shifts the what a brand means because I think. For Nike, it represents billions of dollars, both in money spent and in revenues earned. And I think for a company like Allbirds, 
I think the brand represents affinity and making sure that people are attracted to the brand, want to, when their shoes die out, they want to buy the new shoe. Mm. Uh, or when somebody's walking down the street, they see somebody wearing um, all birds. They want it too. And I feel like that to me has as much value than billions of dollars for a company. Yeah, so I'm going to get into things like streaming has obliterated the entertainment industry. Um, mm. So Spotify and Apple Music, there's more artists being exposed like through algorithms or through yeah. shared lists of other people and whatnot. And it used to be that there was a day that people would sit and listen to an album and experience the album. And right. so that they would have an affinity for that artist. And so then they would buy the next album, maybe go to a rock concert, maybe buy a t-shirt. Yeah. And now Spotify, I have this love frustration with it. Mm. I love the fact that Spotify... It says, you might also like, and I listen to it. I'm like, yeah, that's And I awesome. do also like that. Yes. And I do also <laughs> like that. And so I click on all these different artists that I've never heard of, but like the yeah. music is totally spot on. And some artists that have been amazing. And, but then it gets to the point where I don't remember their names. There's so many of them yeah. that I can't remember them. I can remember the gist of the song, but mm. it, so to, to go back and find out like, how do I find that song? How do I find that artist? There isn't the, the, the back in the days with whether it was vinyl or CDs, there was a physicality to be able to see yeah, your yeah. artist as a brand. And I think that now that part of the brand is sort of diluted. And I think it's also become much more ephemeral. I love that too, because it's in no Ironic sense. I was actually at a vinyl party with my friends last night. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice. You know, we put on Steely Dan's Asia and a bunch of other stuff. And like, and there, but you're totally right. There is something about both the album art, right? The, the, both the physicality, but like, you know, because an LP is big, right? You know, you know, CDs are, CDs got tiny, which is still cool, but um, something about actually having the LP itself and then you got to put it, you got to flip it from side A to side B. There are purists that say it sounds better. I don't, I don't really know, but it sounds great. But there is, but then it's like, but also the the listening of that too in that space is like we're listening together, and there's also like you know yes. this doesn't make me love Steely Dan more necessarily, but yes. it like makes me think about when I'm with friends, I might then think it's about a communal Steely Dan. experience. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, a communal you know? experience. Yeah, you know. The, so it's, I, my sense is, is that I think the music industry I think has reverted back to probably what was like in the medieval times where there was no recording in the medieval times. You would go watch a performance, and I think yeah. now we're getting back to the place where uh, people they consume music through these streaming devices, whether it's paid or unpaid services. But the way that these artists make money is through their concerts and so that they yeah. can create these communal services. To, uh, Taylor Swift is, whether you love her or hate her, she's masterful at creating yeah. those communal experiences. Yeah, And I feel like there's so many different factors that are influencing a brand's longevity. I think it's not just the way that that mark is and what people remember. It's about the experiences that they go through in order to make sure that they latch onto it so that I'm part of their tribe. Mm. So... Yeah, no, I, but I think that the, that experiential piece is is like is quite an important aspect of this too. You know, in in on one level too, like the United States is unabashedly individualistic, right? Yep. And so it is like I want you to be you, and of course that like what's what is okay to be you has changed as as we're saying yep. too. Like we see much more acceptance of difference in diversity, and also like a much more call for it yep. in business space and in, in, in universities, you know, in a lot of spaces. And you know, I, I think that like so part of it. Is it's like there's always this back and forth between the individual and the communal in this case, and, and it's interesting to think about how brands interface with that sometimes. And I don't, I don't mean Nike so much, but just like the ideas of brandness, right? And, and what does it mean to have a recognition and affinity for something, whether a product, service, yep. or even in, in you know, I'm not going to brand a lifestyle, yeah, you know, but there, there are things like lifestyle yeah, sure. brands, right? Yep. And there are celebrities. We may think of Kim Kardashian, Kardashian right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or even Seth Godin, right? The, yeah. the, the market guru. Yeah. You know, he he kind of pushes the idea too of of the brand of being like the, the tribal marketer, right? Yep. You know, and I think that, I don't know, there's there's a lot of interesting pieces there too because I'm, I'm juxtaposing in my head these differences of the ephemeral, because I think you're, you're spot on 
spot on Spotify. Like the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the ephemerality of what artists do I stick to, or I'll, I'm going to listen to one song and I just yeah. make, make a radio from, from yeah. that song, you know, yet we have celebrities that make their individual self, the brand, yes. you know, does that mean they're going to be ephemeral? <laughs> just kind of, maybe the Kardashians will just fade away and, and I don't know, but I think yeah, the ability to have everyone's 15 minutes of fame as Andy Warhol once proclaimed. I think the ability is much easier than it used to be. Mm. But to hold on to those 15 minutes is much more difficult. Ooh, I like that's, that. That's, that's my take on it. Bill, this has been amazing. Cool. Um, thanks so much for, for talking on the, my on the show today. Um, let's, let's keep building the conversation. All right, cool. Thank yeah, you. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. All righty. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Bill Fleming here on this Anthro Life and Experience by Design. You can check out more of Bill's work at BillFleming.com. That's B-I-L-L-F-L-E-M-I-N-G.com. Again, we'll have this linked in the show notes, as well as if you want to find him on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram, his name is Bill Fleming without the I. So B-I-L-L-F-L-E-M-N-G. So Bill Fleming, a little harder to say, but better because, hey, as he likes to say, there's no I in team. Speaking of gifts and giving, if you're still with us, we would love if you could support the show. Maybe a dollar a month, maybe $5 a month, or just a one-off donation of 25 bucks. Whatever works for you, you can check us out on patreon.com slash thisanthrolife. Every dollar, every amount makes a huge difference for production costs, for helping pay for website stuff. All the good things, it helps us know that the show shall go on. And we are incredibly excited to bring you this conversation and many more heading into the new year. So we will catch you all soon. Ciao. This is Adam Gamwell, and we'll see you next time.